identity part five, and I'm adding this onto the front because I did the whole lecture and I forgot to mention that you can still sign up for the class. There are spaces available in September. The first September class is getting towards fullish, but there's still space in the second one. There's still space in the first one too, but uh, people are signing up for the second one. So I'm sort of sticking this onto the front. Uh, this is a paid promotional section of the lecture. So now on to identity part five. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, tonight is identity part five. So tonight I want to talk about all the abstractions that we've adopted to try to understand the world that has become uh, immensely complicated and far too complex and multifaceted for us to be able to comprehend it within the context of our evolutionary process in which we dealt almost exclusively with small groups, sub 100, and then in even early civilization where most people were dealing with groups that weren't exceeding a few hundred or perhaps a thousand. I mean, it takes a long time until much of the population is working in groups larger than a thousand. I mean, that it, by a long time, I mean, it's just into the ADs because most of the of human history, most people were still agrarian and small communal uh, environments. And then, like I said, blame the Enlightenment, although they simply articulated the problems, we get this dramatic change in which suddenly, but not suddenly, but you know, the, the balance tilts and now most people begin living or, uh, in environments where we are dealing with vastly more than a few hundred or a thousand people and the complexity skyrockets and we just don't know what to do. We become completely baffled and this bafflement throws off any sense of us having a clear notion of who we are because the way we constructed identity as we've discussed was based upon and relied on the feedback of small communities in which we recognized other people and other people recognized us. And one example of this I used last time was the concept of class, famously articulated by Marx, not necessarily invented by Marx, but articulated by him. And I had mentioned that this is just a very poor rubric that was not true um, when Marx was alive, and certainly his predictions about the inevitability of class conflict um, certainly did not come true. And that it is not a very helpful, in fact, it's an actively unhelpful way of understanding the world and certainly of finding one's sense of identity within that world. And I got some pushback on that, which I appreciate. I'm very happy when people do this um, because people say, you know, class is a, a worthwhile idea. It is a helpful way of thinking about the world because you have the sort of owners and you have the oppressed masses, so on and so forth. Um, but no, this is not true. It, again, it wasn't true in Marx's time and it wasn't certainly not true today and probably or hopefully will never be true. But just to go through the statistics, which I didn't do last time, so I'll, I'll fill this out a bit. In Britain in 1900, just to pick a date. So once you get, even in 1900, your, your statistics are a bit sketchy. But again, when you move any earlier than that, statistics really are, you know, it's a bit of guesstimation. So I usually try and pick statistics from around 1900 because that's when sort of record keeping and, you know, kind of comes up to the point where you go, okay, that's at least moderately uh, reliable for, you know, various fields. But uh, Britain, by far the most industrialized country in the world, in 1900 only had at most, and I'm being generous here, about 30% of the workforce in industrial pursuits. So this is weaving factories. These are coal mines. I'm counting coal mining here, of course. And then you have uh, the big mills, the, the steel, 
um, various kinds of factories. And I mean at most, and that is being generous. So 30% of the workforce in the most industrialized country in the world in 1900 would potentially be in what you would call, would meet Marx's definition of, of, of the working class, the proletariat, the industrial proletariat. Um, about 10%, which is shockingly low for the time, by the way, but about 10% of the population worked on farms, but a, a much higher percentage were still rural, but they didn't all necessarily work on farms. In fact, of course, many coal mines were rural. Um, another 40% or more, again, how do you define these things, worked in the service sector. So this is everything from waiters to lawyers, nurses to uh, doctors to um, street cleaners, right? These are not industrial workers. They don't fall under the capitalist uh, exploitation model of uh, capital-intensive, large-scale industry. I mean, they, you know, just they don't follow the model. Then you had, you know, if you know, maybe say 10% of the population you might want to call the... Oh, by the way, of course, these would be the sort of huge umbrella bourgeoisie. Right, just the vast, but so that, see how unhelpful that is. That when uh, a, a street cleaner, a nurse, a doctor, a lawyer, a judge, um, and a waiter are the same class, it's just not that helpful. It, and in fact, even a coal miner um, being in the same class as someone who, say, uh, a woman in, who, who's in a weaving mill. I mean, in some ways, sure, they, they share some things, but in some ways it's not that helpful of a distinction. It's very different working environments, very different sort of needs and desires. So, you know, just not that helpful. But basically only so 10%, let's say 10% is the capitalist class, but of course you've got an aristocracy, very small percentage. You have the rural landowners who generally tended not to be of the capitalist class, it, but depending on how you want to score that. And then you had the sort of new, you know, investment money, the sort of capital investment money, which was often at war with the rural landowning class. So these were not, these guys were not um, in agreement on this. They were, they were not a, a unified group, you know, facing off the opposition. They had very different interests and they pursued them aggressively uh, and they had resources. But even, so even if we lump those people in and call them the capitalist class, still well more than half the population. Uh, does not fit within the rubric that Marx was trying to outline. And he lived in the most uh, society, most like what he was imagining, you know, with, the, with the largest, you know, sort of industrial labor force at the time as a percentage. Um, and so, yeah, it, so it just, it just it, when 60 or 70% of your population falls out of your model in which you're trying to define the whole population, it's not a very good model, basically. That's, that's it. It doesn't mean that... Thinking about people in different groups is necessarily bad, but the class and certainly three classes, yeah, this is this is no good. Um, similarly, at the time, if you look at the United States, which is sort of more representative of the of the rest of the world, only a, about forty percent of the people were involved in agriculture, so vastly higher, and about sixty percent of the population was rural, and so even before we've done any of the other you know strange groups or whatever, I mean sixty percent. Uh, agrarian and rural population, not in, you know, not doing a lot of mining yet. Uh, you know, so again, you look at a country, large country, industrializing country, but not quite there yet. You know, they, it just isn't that helpful because what rural farmers in Michigan 
want and desire small landowning farmers or big farmers or peasants essentially working on farm those are three different groups of people who have three very different uh, ways of life and you know different desires and they're not a class you can't just say oh the the, the rural people though they're the same and then but they're certainly not the working proletariat who are all the same who are certainly not the you know capitalist class who are all the same or even meaningfully similar um, and two examples where you can see this quite clearly is one in those societies that tried to achieve something or respond to the kinds of problems uh, based on these abstractions of class, what you saw was mass murder. Because the only way to get people to try and sort of line up this way was to just, you know, basically force them at gunpoint. And when they didn't cooperate, which many of them didn't, you shot them. That's the history of this. So when the Russian Revolution decided to collectivize the farms, which is to say to make the farms like large communal cooperatives. So you, if you have a factory and you have 10,000 workers and 100 managers and the factory workers take over, okay, now they run the factory. So if you say, okay, farms are like factories, this is how this proletariat revolution thing works, then we'll go out in the countryside and we'll get rid of all those. And what they found out in much of the Russian countryside were the kulaks, which were small to medium land holding, particularly in the Ukraine, but everywhere, basically, um, farmers who were prosperous relative to the day and relative to their environment. You know, they might have, you know, 50 acres, might have 10 acres, but they owned it themselves. They had no interest in being collectivized because they liked their farm. They had lived there maybe generations. They had invested in it. They had, you know, they were, they were doing well, again, relative to their place and where they were. And so you had to collectivize them at gunpoint. And this sort of ended up killing uh, millions, uh, tens of millions, actually. Uh, similarly, in um, the Great Leap Forward and, and, you know, in China, the attempt to, hey, we're going to reshape our economy along the industrial model so it fits much better this abstraction. Again, what do you get? You get tens of millions of people dead because the complexity of the world vastly, vastly outstrips any sense of three classes. But this is the thing. This, my sympathy for this concept arises from, wow, what do you do when you land in a place where you have so many strangers that you don't know who they are and they don't know who you are, so you can't get a sense of who, you who you are because it's never reflected back at you. What you grasp for, it just seems to be you know right off the bat, and this is why I keep talking about the Enlightenment, what they grasp for is abstractions that will allow us to categorize large groups of people and then we can act as if those abstractions are hugely meaningful in defining who we are and who they are. And it's a good a good theoretical solution, but of course it's a horrible uh, functional solution to what's going on. So, But think about what came up at this time. So yet this is when class issues really start being articulated in the terms of class, like with Marx we've talked about. Race, as I mentioned before, the Enlightenment becomes, um, many Enlightenment thinkers become, I wouldn't say obsessed with race, but it becomes one of the main things they start thinking and talking about because it's like, oh, how do we, basically, how do we figure out who we are and how do we figure out who we are relative to other people now that we've thrown off the old model of social organization and, and systems? Religion, of course, becomes, you know, when everybody's of the same religion, you have all kinds of richness and complexity but everybody just sort of goes along we're all sort of catholic we're all having arguments within the catholic 
again, once you have choice, which religion you are becomes really a significant issue. And so people start pursuing this as a means of, of, of clear personal identification. Um, of course, nationalism, whoo, that's a big one. Uh, I mean, nationalism makes no sense, but people love it. It's been exploited. The notion that, oh, where you are born and raised defines a significant part of who you are. We'll talk about this more in a second. Uh, gender issues, which have come to the fore recently, and you'd think this was a, a more recent issue, but it really starts coming to the fore as soon as this these issues of freedom um, and personal expression and being put into places of complexity, it, it jumps forward. And language, when we, th we forget about, but language has always been this big issue of, of defining individuals and groups. But to give you a sense of, of the complexity and where we are and how much has changed, uh, go back again in time. And I usually look at literary sources because they're good to give you a sense of different times. But if you look at something like Castiglione's The Courtier, which is about, uh, when was that? I, I, think I was going to write this down. Uh, 1540s, 1540s. Um, it's, it's a great moment in there because they're talking about, amongst other things, what makes a good courtier. And what becomes clear, if you think about it in terms of identity, is things are shifting already. Already in 1540, things are shifting. Because the one courtier, he's saying, oh, basically, you've got to be able to fight. you got to be able to ride a horse because you need to ride a horse to get to the fight. You know, you need to be able to lead. He's sort of taking the old, well, a good supporter, a good courtier, a good person who supports his uh, liege lord is basically this kind of memory of the knight of yore. And that's what you've got to do. And of course, everyone's sort of laughing at this guy because this is, even in 1500s, this is a very outmoded way of thinking. And the rest of the courtiers start talking about, you know, dancing because that makes you pleasing and entertaining. And you've got to be able to write well and because you do a lot of communication. And you've got to be able to make poetry because that goes along with writing well. And you have to be able to think clearly because you're an advisor. You've got to be pleasant in your conversation because you're also there to entertain the nobles. And so what happens is they never make any headway on this, by the way, which is because they were there to a limited degree where we are to a massive degree. The world had already, by 1540, become too complex for any single definition to cover the full range of the kinds of people one needed if you were going to run a, a, a large Italian estate in any way. So you know you're going to have to have people who can help manage the agriculture. You have to have ambassadors to the other other princes and, and counts, and you have to have people who are communicating with the Vatican. And you're going to need some people who do know how to do military stuff because, of course, they're always fighting each other. You have to have uh, translators and writers. You're going to need to educate your staff. You have to have record keeping. You're doing banking. Hello, the Medicis. So you've got to have all these bookkeeping skills and people who know math. And, you know, and so all of a sudden, you don't need five guys who are muscly and know how to ride horses and, and a stable master. You need a variety, a wide variety of human capacities, and no one quite knew what to make of this. Right? It, that's why Castiglione's The Courtier is a book, because the question that that's, it answers is the one that was on people's mind, which is, well, how does one become a good courtier? What am I supposed to be doing? It's like one of the early, like, you know, how to be successful in business. Basically, you could title it that, how to be successful in business in 1540 if you're in one of the Italian states. 
because a courtier was sort of one of your main ways of self-advancement. And so people were curious. They wanted to know, how can I do this? How do I, you know, make, ingratiate myself with the people in power and move up and, you know, make a place for myself in the world? Answer, not very helpfully answered, but it certainly explores the topic. And what you discover is, man, even in 1540, it was confusing. Fast forward, you know, a couple hundred years to the Enlightenment, it's way more confusing. Fast forward to today, and oh dear, we're doomed. And again, I'll explore this more fully. You can even go earlier, by the way. So I was trying to think of the earliest examples of this that you really see in literature. And I thought of Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales, where there's, you know, 23, 24 different characters who tell tales. And each tale is called, like, The Miller's Tale. And they tend to start with a description of the miller, in this case. And... For Chaucer's audience and for the audiences for, for many generations, these were identifiable characters. Oh, we know who a miller is. We know who a priest is. We know who's a parson. We know who, uh, who are the, uh, we have the wife of Bath. She's kind of a hilarious outlier. You have uh, the monk, um, summoner, you know, so uh, the legal clerk, basically a lawyer. Um, you, you have these identifiable characters, but even in what is that? 1300s again. No, I'm she, 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 right. No, 1400s. It's got to be 1400s. 14 mid 1400s uh, for Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Again, there you go. Right. Already, you have 23, 24, 25 identical, identifiable, different classes of people, and but it was easier for them to address that because they were familiar with all of these classes. And when you all grouped up to go off to Canterbury, you had a shared goal and they're all talking to each other and they learned it. And again, you have this small group that can recognize and understand each other and communicate and, hey, we can make this work. Again, by the time, you know, Marx comes around and is saying there's three classes of people, that's just insane. There were 23 people in Canterbury's, in, in Chaucer's age, at least 23, of course. He doesn't have everybody. Um, you know, you fast forward, we have thousands of people. You could, Canterbury could just, he could just, Chaucer could just carry on his tales forever because there's so many different kinds of professions and backgrounds and outlooks. And so what Marx is trying to do is wrap his head around this and he says, okay, well, let's break it, these people into abstract classes. And that's what I want to focus on is that mistake, which I, I'll call it a mistake, is an understandable but it's a hopeless attempt to try to organize um, a world even then, and certainly now, it's just that's preposterous. This is a preposterously incorrect way of thinking about the world. And yet we love it. We love it because we're desperate to have identities that we can pin down. So again, I know who I am. I know who they are. And I'm pretty sure that we can agree. So this is the thing. If we can agree on these abstractions, then we can reinforce each other and we can be happy because you know who I am. I know who you are. Even if I don't like you, I don't like what you're trying to be or who you are. Maybe I'm the proletariat and you're the, you're the worker or you're the, the capitalist who owns the factory. At least I know where I stand and you know where you stand and we sort of reciprocate each other. And boy, this is very helpful. But again, a bad way of trying to think about the world and certainly trying to think about our identity within the world. But it's not just the class abstraction, it's all of them. Um, one of the ones I love, um, because uh, um, for some reason, people keep trying to get me to join men's groups, which I find hilarious because I don't think of men as a group, but it's that great abstraction. 
right? This notion of, oh, here's a, here's a group of men, and if we get together as men, then we can be men. This is as far as I can figure out what the hell they're talking about, by the way. Um, many elements of this I just find uh, off-putting and hilarious and uh, uh, unhelpful and unfortunate. But the one is, notice if you, if being a man were really innate, if there was some quality of manness that were innate to people, you wouldn't need to join a group to have a feeling that that was innate and have them give you the feedback to say, to, to validate that. It's the fact that it's not innate that drives us. It is, this is another one of those abstractions. Now, it's not biologically abstract. It, what it is, is it's uh, emotionally, culturally abstract. What does it mean to be a man? There's a thousand ways to be a man. There were a thousand ways in Chaucer's age to be a man. There was a many, many ways in the Greek age to be a man, and their society was not even one millionth as complicated as ours. But what we want to do is we want to say, oh, shrink all that complexity down. Oh, if I can just pin down this corner of the universe and say, okay, well, men are basically like this. I'm a man. And so now I know basically who I am, what I am, what I'm supposed to like, how I'm supposed to act, what my worldview should be. And then I can talk to other men and then they can reinforce it. And then, wow, we can all feel good about each other and yay. Um, yeah, unyay. And But if you look on YouTube, which I don't recommend, but if you do a search for this, you will find they have all these videos. It's amazing. And what do they do is say, oh, a man in 1950s talks about what it was like to be a man in, you know, 1950s or 1960s. It's like, so one guy is going to tell us what this was like? I mean, as if there wasn't a wide ver variety. And by the way, it's never Allen Ginsberg. They're never interviewing Allen Ginsberg as one guy is going to tell us what it was like to be a man in the 1950s or, or Leonard Bernstein, right? Or, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, oh, who else could we pick? Who, who's General de Gaulle? Well, let's have General de Gaulle tell us what it was like to be a man in the 50s. You know, it's, that doesn't work, right? Because, ooh, those guys, right? And here's, here's the trick, of course. Here's the trick. It's called the genetic fallacy. But if you're a man and you don't feel like or identify with this, the trick is then, oh, well, you're not really a man. You're not the right kind of man. You're not really expressing yourself. And so it, the only way to defend these sort of crazy positions is to attack the people who do not fit the model or who suggest that the model is um, dubious at best. And so it generates all this conflict. So rather than solving problems, rather than helping identity, it tends to force people into kind of foxholes where they want to defend positions because they're desperate to have a sense of identity, which is completely understandable. Because as I said, the world we live in sort of robs us of all the structures that would provide us with that sense in other cases. And, and you find this is true. So you know, all these crazy uh, gender issues where people are trying to uh, use their gender, biological or other, as a means of saying, well, this is who I am. Uh, except for the, how many ways are there to be like that? You know, you've got billions of people in the world. It's pr the human variety is pretty impressive. I'm always amazed by this. But again, don't take my word for it. Just go to any large store in the United States. Uh, I don't know if all the world is like this. I kind of hope so. But if not, just know in the United States, if you go to a large store in the United States, um, you will find 1,000 kinds of cereal. And it's because people like a lot of different kinds of cereal. We don't want one or two. Or There's not a man cereal and a woman cereal. That would be silly. There's not a upper class cereal, a proletariat cereal, and a bourgeois cereal. That would be silly. No, there's a 
stupid variety of, of cereals and a great human variety. Uh, I was talking to a Korean friend of mine one time, and he said, oh, yeah, in, in, in Korea, if you go to these big stores, what they have is a wall of kimchi, right? Like, there will be so many kimchis, right? Like, you just won't let you blow your mind how many kimchis there are. And I'm like, wow, that's great, right? Because, okay, they don't do cereal, maybe, but they like the kimchi. So there's like a million, you know, cheese and in, in, in regions where people love cheese. There's not four cheeses or not eight cheeses. There's 80, there's 100, there's 500. How many varieties of wine are there? Good Lord, this makes no sense, except for it makes all the sense in the world, right? So that attempt to take people who are eating 800 kinds of cheese and say basically there's two kinds of people male cheese eaters and female cheese eaters is silly um and same thing but we want to and we need to by the way it's not just a want we need basically to come to grips with this world of extraordinary complexity and we leap to abstractions again nationalism this is one of course here we go, right? The Enlightenment coincides very well with the rise of vicious nationalism. Uh, you know, many of the thinkers were opposed to it. Many of the thinkers were in favor of it. It kind of depended where you fell. Some people saw nationalism as the answer to getting rid of a king. Some people saw, some of these thinkers saw it as nationalism as just a new, uh, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. You know, Nietzsche famously opposed to nationalism. Uh, Goethe very dubious about all this, you know. So it, it, depending on where you were uh, in in the run of things and, and what country and what region and what thinker, but boy, they were thinking about it. You know, you know, we the people of the United States of America. By the way, there was no United States when they wrote that. It's one of the great, like, well, just imagine that there's some people. Like 11 guys or 12 guys wrote the Declaration of Independence. We the people, the 12 of us have decided that we're going to speak for everybody um, and we're going to declare that we're free. And you know what? They pulled it off, which is impressive and amazing, but yeah, meaningful in the sense of were they really representative of the people of the United States? They were absolutely the least representative group of people you could ever assemble. Educated, wealthy, uh, able to travel, not, you know, not farm laborers, most of them. So many of them had European connections, which basically, you know, so they were just crazily unrepresentative. I mean, they've been elected or chosen in some ways, but were they like the people from the place they came in? Eh, not so much. But anyway, so they made a country uh, and they kind of made it stick. But notice a nation is just a completely abstract idea. A city like the old nation, notion of city-state kind of makes more sense because cities are concrete. And for the longest time in history, people did not think, uh, even, you know, to relatively recent history, they didn't think, oh, I'm, uh, I'm German because German, Germany became an organized state so recently. But, you know, oh, I'm from a city or I'm from Paris or I'm, I live in London or I'm from Manchester, right? People identified with the city that they're associated with. And cities at least make sense in that they're physical. You can see them. They're not as abstract. I mean, they have abstract components of government and all this. But a nation, right? You're a citizen of the United States of America. I never know what that means. I mean, it has all kinds of legal implications and barriers and borders. But if you look at the Earth from space, you don't see all these lines. But they matter. Boy, they do matter legally. But... This all in this weird abstract notion, but the idea is like, oh, hey, we're all Frenchmen. Come on, let's let's back Napoleon, 
because all those Austrians and those Russians and the English, they're trying to keep us down. And we're going we're gonna to make sure that doesn't happen because, wow, we're all French. This was a new idea. The idea that all these different regions of France where people lived made up one organized thing. They just made that up just the way we made up the United States. They just, people sat around, hey, let's, let's say it's a country. We'll just write it down on a piece of paper. And if we pull it off, maybe it'll happen. Huh, it did. What do you know about that? Spain still hasn't decided whether it's a country. We kind of think of it as a country. I'm not sure the Spanish think of it as a country, but many of the Spanish certainly don't think of it as a country. You know, but, but we, we love this idea. Oh, we're basically Americans. Americans are like this. It, which is, I mean, for a country as diverse as the United States, for everything from Hawaii, uh, you know, recent acquisition, to Alaska, very different places with very different populations, to Texas and Florida. I mean, it makes no sense. It actually makes zero sense to think of that we share some fundamental traits in common. Uh, most of us speak English, although we are one of the largest Spanish-speaking countries in the world. Uh, but, you know, poof. yeah, it makes no sense. And, and of course, people talk about, oh, you know, this vicious political divide that we're in now. Sure. If you try to make a vision of the world, which is an abstraction, that we're all, you know, we're all U.S. citizens and we all basically agree about everything and we all basically should get along. We all have some shared values. And those other people who aren't U.S. citizens don't because they're not us, therefore they're them, and them is bad, and us is good. Yeah, that's going to create problems. It's going to create problems, in, particularly in a world where, you know, globalization famously, inter, international trade, international travel, exposure to international media is everywhere, essentially. I mean, how do you maintain these kinds of ideas? It's extraordinarily difficult. But if you try to identify yourself by nationalism, by nation, now you feel threatened because you're threatened because that abstraction is falling apart. It's basically unsustainable. You can really see this in the populist messages of, you know, like Hungary and Poland today where they, I mean, they, they're not shy about this in any way. They're like, look, uh, Hungary is Hungary. Uh, Hungarians born and raised here are a unique people. Um, if you're a young Hungarian and you leave the country, you're betraying your people. Right, because only only if the Hungarians stay here and defend us from the non-Hungarians can we develop a, a you know a unified, stable European country. Um, and what's crazy about this is the Austro-Hungarian Empire. <laughs> I mean, that that the Hungarians can say this is historically one of the funniest things ever, because. I mean, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was this mess. I mean, it was spread all over Europe. I mean, with pockets here and pockets there, and it was assembled, and the borders changed. I've got, I can't even imagine how many times. Poly, many languages, polyglot uh, civilization. They rolled on for centuries and centuries, always about to fall apart. And really, fine, you know, never got around to doing it until World War I. But, you know, but now it's like, oh, all of a sudden, nowhere this coherent we have all this integrity. We have this clear history. It's so geographically bounded, all of which has been true for about 80 years, maybe. Maybe not even that long, actually. I should check. But it's not been very long that any of, any of that has been even remotely or vaguely possibly true. But the appeal works because 
if it's not, if I'm not a Hungarian as my core identity, what am I? Who am I? What abstraction can I attach myself to? And again, another one that was popular, as I mentioned, race, right? Race, the ever vexed issue of race, was not that vexed of an issue until the Enlightenment because it wasn't a core way of trying to define people. And they just thought, oh, there's people from Africa. Yeah, they're different from people from here and they're different from people from there. But one, people had extraordinarily limited exposure to people from other places in the world. I mean, that South America, Central America, North America is really not being actively visited and colonized and explored and exchanged with until about three or four hundred years ago is, you know, think about that. That means, you know, the, the new world or so-called did not have any contact with the old world. They had no idea what was going on. Incredibly isolated relative to how we think of the world today. Um, China, I mean, the, the you know, I'm trying to remember the name of the Jesuit priest that tried to get in and talk to the Ming, Ming emperor. He wanted to convert him of course, to Catholicism, because thought that would be a trick. We get the Chinese on board with uh, Catholicism, and then, and then that'll do it. certainly would score points against those Protestants following the Reformation, right? This is the big movement of the Counter-Reformation. But he's in China, so this is what, 1560s, 1600. He's there, uh, try, but he has to write like the grammars. He has to write like, so like how do we... How do we read Chinese? Nobody knew because there was so... I mean, there had been little here and there, a visit there. It's not that China was a closed society or, or the European countries were a closed society. It's just that it's a long, long ways and a hugely expensive and incredibly risky back then to make these contacts directly. And so it rarely happened. And we, you know, people talk about, oh, the Silk Road. Yeah, and the Silk Road is a great example of this. Because the traders did not travel all the way. They did one leg of the journey. We'll go from, you know, China to, you know, this oasis out in the desert. And then somebody out in the desert will pick it up. And then I go back to China. And then so it was a, a sequence of posts where traders would would swap. And then it would go to the next post. And they would swap and go to the next post. and go. Very rarely did a, a tr either someone by ship or by land, certainly land, um, even more rare, would they make the whole journey? Because this is we're talking immense distances. This is why the Crusades were so epic, because people hadn't been to the Holy Lands for a long time. And they got there, it kind of blew their minds, because it turns out they, you know, those backward savages, yeah, they weren't quite as backwards and quite as savagey uh, as we had been expecting, um, you know, that, those sorts of things. And then they brought back all kinds of material goods, but this sorts of... Uh, uh, exchange between different civilizations, different cultures, different races was relatively rare for 98% of the population. And that's why when the new world was discovered and the printing press started to get to spread the word, uh, I mean, it was, it was a mind blowing uh, world outlook changing perspective as people started going, Oh, Hey, wait a second. Mont Montaigne writes about this where he says, it turns out that if you travel to the other side of the mountain, what they call good, we call bad. What they call bad, we call good, right? That different people in different places have per per different perspectives on sort of morality, ethics, how to live, what you should be doing, how to dress. And the more you encounter the world, 
the, the greater this problem becomes. And what was true a little bit in Montaigne's day, by the time you read the Enlightenment, because the international trade has exploded by then, is, is truer. And then, of course, you our world where we're exposed to global trade, global travel, and global media. Yeah, how, I mean, wh- how the hell are you supposed to make sense of this all? What's good? What's bad? What's right? What's wrong? And so encountering other races as races was relatively rare. That's why the Enlightenment started thinking about this. That, you know, that they didn't, for instance, before this, if you look at the, uh, um, say, the Muslim invasions of Europe, when they tried to, like, take Vienna, which was sort of a seasonal goal every year, they, the, the Ottoman Turks were like, you know what, this, we should do this year, we should take Vienna, we should try and do that again, right? They sort of did that for a long time. They kept repeatedly trying to take Vienna. They didn't think of them as a race. They thought of them mostly as those uh, those crazy Muslim Turkish peoples, right? It, it didn't, you know, race schmace. It was the fact that they were, you know, invading from over there and trying to take Vienna and were a different religion. That's what kind of was driving them crazy. It wasn't necessarily a race thing. And, and of course, the Ottoman Turkish Empire is a great example because they were so widespread. They had so many different people. And they had the Janissaries, which is where they would just basically take a tax of orphans or not orphans as the case may be, but the tax of kids and they would raise them as orphans uh, to work in the imperial bureaucracy so that they would theoretically be loyal. It's not, it's almost like a eunuch, but not quite, but that way they were sort of dedicated to the empire, but they took them from everywhere, from Africa, from everywhere the Ottoman Turks were, they took these kids and raised them up to be the most important members of the imperial bureaucracy. So, you know, that they're not functioning that much on, on, on this concept. But then when the world gets so diverse and you start having lots of people around, then you start going, hey, let's start thinking about these people uh, in terms of race. And it really starts to become an issue, an unhelpful issue, unfortunately, but it does become an issue. Um, and then we start saying, oh, you know, those, those people are Africans. I mean, I guess which is such a ridiculous notion because Africa is so huge and it has all the genetic diversity of humanity in it. So to say someone's, well, they're African, it's like, yes, that's it. That's everybody is because that's all we have. I mean, that is the, the mother right there. Um, but, or, or famously, the, where Moses Mendelssohn, who was a Jewish thinker, probably the greatest thinker of his generation, but certainly one of the greatest generation thinkers of his generation, of any generation, anywhere, um, in, the, in the town he lived, he was Jewish, and so he was subject to the Jewish laws. And people go, oh, yeah, you know, the, the uh, racial towards Jewishness, yes and no. Yes, and the fact that, yeah, there were a lot of laws about Jews, but I think they had seven or eight different categories of Jew that you could be. So if you have seven or eight different categories of Jew, it's not... And I mean, these are legal, like you can do this, you can do that, you can't do this, this, you can do, right? So they had the category of Jew, but they didn't have it as like this unified, oh, all the Jews are like this kind of thing. And so even, you know, even in his time, it was much more complicated. And as the world's gotten more complicated, what we've tried to do is actually squish that and make it increasingly simple. And so that way we can say, uh, Oh, I know who that person is. I know something important and significant about them because I know that they're a Hungarian. By the way, think of how weird that sounds in the United States because we don't think of Hungarian as a race. But right now, the populists in Hungary are saying specifically this. Well, we know who we are because we're Hungarian. 
Like that's the big, you know, sort of cultural racial distinction that we want to draw a line around. Like we're Hungarians, right? And so we're different from and potentially superior to uh, those other, you know, races that we don't like. And I'm like, Hungarian? French used to had the same concept. The France was a race. We're a superior race. We're a dominant race. We have this, you know, civilization. But we don't think of the French as a race, right? Like that. And this is why race is such a stupid concept is because it just makes no sense except when you're trying to solve this problem. Like, how do I know who I am? And, I, and I've mentioned it in another lecture at some point, but I love it so much. It's the great uh, uh, observation by Baldwin, another great observation by Baldwin, I should say, where he said what uh, unnerves white people about African-Americans in the United States is that they have an identity because they have no choice, right? And in a racist society that I always points at you, they're continually getting that feedback that allows them, they have no choice but to know in part who they are because they're constantly being told who they are. And that identity that's forced on them then unnerves the, the white community because it does not have that. The, they, and, and the increasing, so, so it's this weird, uh, weird paradoxical circle because what you need to have an identity is the feedback of people uh, continually reinforcing who you are. It would be nice if that were positive, but one of the negative ways this happens is if you have a caste system as in India or you have a racial system as the United States, if it's strongly continually reinforced to you, this gives you an identity. It actually gives you something that so many people are desperate for in the modern world. And then when you meet somebody who has a strong sense of who they are, a strong sense of identity, it's unnerving. People find it unnerving because they're like, oh, I, 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 don't, I don't have that. So I always think that not white supremacy isn't just this, but one of the aspects of white supremacy is it's this attempt to sort of mirror, right, that. It's like, oh, so we, if we tell each other that we're superior all the time and we give ourselves that reinforcement, we'll have what the African-American community has because we continually tell them that they're, that they're not. But telling them they're not does not actually help us that much. We need to tell us also that we are. And so it's this, it almost is this kind of sad uh, mimicry, an, an attempt to get what they forced on somebody else back. Uh, in, 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 of course, a poisonous and a helpful fashion in every direction. But I, still, I find it fascinating, the psychology there, because it is understandable. And so you have all these attempts to appeal to abstractions because we're buried in a world of unimaginable complexity and diversity. And we need to find a way to boil it down. Um, and philosophically speaking, there's all kinds of uh, material that we'll talk about and I'll explore in more detail uh, in the coming episodes. But fundamentally, I think, I don't think this is an answerable question. I think this is one of those problems that the modern world has presented that the individual that our evolutionary, again, uh, you know, our primate evolutionary history and then our cultural and civilization evolution through, you know, tens of thousands of years of hunter-gatherer and then, you know, another eight or 9,000 years of agrarian small-scale uh, societies with, you know, villages and whatnot has completely 
completely and totally left, left us incapable at the moment of really addressing this problem. Like we're, we're just, wah, we're just kind of standing with very limited tools and we're looking around going, oh. And people always say, oh, you know, another example for me that always uh, makes me think of this is cults, right? Why are people, oh, there's cults, you know, people, these crazy cults are doing these things and crazy cults are doing that thing. And I always, I'm sort of like, yeah, I mean, yeah, they were crazy. On the other hand, I go, why aren't there more cults? Why aren't there more small-scale cults with a few hundred members just doing crazy stuff? Because that at least makes sense within the context of our evolutionary and cultural history. If I can get in with a group of 100 or 200 people, then here we go, right? Now I'm in my good space. Now I'm in my happy place. I know them, they know me, we've come to some fundamental agreement that, you know, aliens are going to come in a week and so we should do something to prepare and we're all on board with that and so we can feedback positive with each other. I know who I am, I know who they are, I know they know who I am and they know I know who they are and wow, we feel great. At some level, this is incredibly reassuring and gives me a strong sense of identity and purpose. Um. So, yeah, why aren't there more cults, right? Like, really, I mean, when you, when you think about it, it's like, boy, we should get a bunch more of them, right? That, was, that These should be even more popular. And by the way, this is why, going having, having criticized Marx, I should say, you know, on the flip side of this, this is why when you collectivize things like factories, often the workers really like it. Because you say, look, now we're a team, we're all in this together, we have a common goal, we're going to meet production targets or whatever. And this works for a while. It doesn't work forever because, of course, you know, at some point it has to actually function as a, as a factory. But, you know, for a while, production really did jump. For a while, the Soviet Union was making incredible leaps. Uh, and people were motivated. They did believe because, oh, now I'm a member of a team. Now I'm part of something bigger than myself. Now I can identify. Now I have groups who tell me who I am. I can tell there. We're all getting along. We're eating. Hey, life is good. And it really does produce. I mean, if, if it didn't function at all, then, of course, it wouldn't function at all. But it does serve this fundamental purpose. Um uh, again, another example, literary example, is in Orwell, he points this out quite clearly in 1984, the great, great work, often misunderstood work, but great work where, you know, what drives the people around our narrator, or our main character, is the desire to be a member. They're, they want to be part of this. His, his, they want to fit in. They want to go along. They find that uh, comforting. The big thing that the narrator does to try and start breaking away from this is he's trying to keep a diary of his own thoughts. And that's the, that's the big violation that, that you know, eventually is going to get him into all kinds of trouble. So, you know, th that desire for need to biological basic need to have uh, a, a world that is comprehensible, that has numbers that we can sort of get our minds around, and that continually feeds back to me a sense of who I am in a way that makes me go, yeah, okay, I'm an American. I see that this is America. I see news that tells me the things I want to know about America and reinforces my sense of what America means. Okay, this makes me at some level feeds a need. 
and and if I don't get that, well, then I'm at sea. Then I'm lost. Well, then maybe I'm I I I need to find another abstraction that I can join to. Of course, obviously, I'm gonna in a, in a little bit next episode talk about why abstractions aren't that helpful. But this is why you see these huge abstractions become so massively, massively important. It's the rise of these sorts of notions is not uh, coincidental. It's necessary. When you see when this, when you get the concentration of people in cities, you have to have these abstractions basically to to serve this. If you look at what kings used to do with their time, they would either travel around to visit continuously, because the king was not an abstraction; he was an actual person, and the way he ruled was by interacting with people. And if your society was small enough and the power was concentrated in few enough hands. This was functional. You know, uh, if if a king saw 25 or 30 important people a day, and each of those people were associated with, say, a thousand people, he's basically connecting with 25,000 people a day, you know, 100,000 people a week, a million people a month. You're actually doing a fairly reasonable job of being a presence. And when kings or queens or rulers would go out in the countryside or travel around, it was so people could see them. It was a display. And like, oh, now I've seen the king. All these sort of public displays that people kind of mock now, they go, oh, that was fair. Why did they do that? That's wasteful. No, no, no. This was the whole point because the king wasn't supposed to be an abstraction, was supposed to be an actual concrete person that you could see, in theory at least, and touch and know. The United States is not a concrete thing. There is no United States. It does not exist. It's a complete and total abstraction. At least if I were someone important, I might ever someday have an audience with a king physically. You can't have an audience with the United States because it doesn't exist. And so even that shift, as late as that happens from princes, counts, dukes, whatever, kings, and all the problems associated, I'm not saying that was some great solution to all humans' problems. I'm just saying that at least was comprehensible because it was concrete or at least vastly more concrete. It becomes increasingly abstract, of course, as these problems ramify. And then when you can't contact the king, when enough people can't associate with them, they lose any sense that it matters. And, they, and then you're like, well, I don't care if an abstraction gets his head cut off. It doesn't matter to me. I care if somebody I know and I feel for and I'm attached to and I feel concrete gets their head cut off because that person is my friend. But a king who's an abstraction, pff, I don't care. Cut his head off. There you go. You know, and that, that you know, it's a, obviously this is a slow balance. So that motion over time from systems where primarily were concrete we knew the people around us. We knew our geography. We knew the weather. We knew what was going to happen within a you know, pretty limited range of possible outcomes. We'd probably been in the same place for a long time. We planned on being in the same place for a long time in the future. Two, I don't know anybody around me. I didn't build this place. I'm not going to probably be here that long. I'll be moving around even in the same city. I don't know where I'll be in the future. I don't know where my kids are going to be. Uh, I don't, I'm in an abstract political structure that I can't touch. There's no, you know, there's Kafka is very good about this. Like what happens when you enter these weird political structures where there's no there there? Yeah, welcome, welcome to the future. I mean, we live in Kafka's future to an extraordinary degree. Um, so that world is what we're trying to deal with. 
And finally, I'll, I'll leave you with this thought, right? So these abstractions are also taking place against human diversity. And what is unlocked with this, the good side of all this, is this increasing level of individual freedom that the Enlightenment also articulates brings with it the possibility to express the incredible diversity of human potential. Like people are, I think we vastly underappreciate the sheer diversity of humanity. Um, we're always, again, this abstraction notion, we're always trying to say, well, people are basically like this. I think the best thing to say is people are basically not any particular way. People are all over the map. People, I mean, if just look at the range of hobbies. Look at the range of breakfast here. Look at the range of travel destinations. Look at the, you know, anytime people have an opportunity to express choice and, and their ideas and their uh, uh, desires, what you get is massive, massive sort of diversity. All the different sports people like to play, all the different, you know, everything. Just, just again, that diversity is a sign, I, I would say, of human uh, health, of human potential being realized, being explored, being expressed. But, of course, the flip side of that is that sort of diversity is very off-putting, it's very confusing, and it's incredibly unnerving. So you can have someone who, in their community, might be incredibly well-known, might be, you know, be hugely successful within the context of their world. They might have, say, 10 million, they might be, you know, the number one person in a group of 10 million. But in a world of billions of people, that may not actually translate into anybody else knowing who these people are. And so we live in both an increasingly diverse and increasingly fragmented world, which is not uh, unlikely. It's a necessary correlation of a diverse people being able to express their diversity. You would expect fragmentation. You would expect massive, massive uh, complexity and confusion and inability to know what's going on. I give an assignment in one of my classes, uh, pop, culture, pop culture that I teach, where I say, hey, what music should I be listening to today? You tell me one band, one song to listen to, and I'll check it out. And then, you know, because we talk to a whole section on music. And I'm always amazed that somebody will, one of my students will give me a song to look at, and I'll look it up on YouTube usually. And it'll have, you know, 500 million views. And it'll be somebody I've never heard of. Like it's an artist, I've, I've not, the name Nobels, never heard of this, 500 million views. I'm like, wow, that is a lot. That is a successful musical act or person. They have five, and I don't know who they are. And then I'll go to class and I'll say, oh, I'd never heard of this song before. And like three members of the class will laugh and look at me like, like I'm from Mars. And a couple other students will go, oh, yeah, you know, we kind of like that. And then, like, half the class will go, oh, I'd never heard of that band. Right? Like, we never heard of them. And, and because we're liking, we're over here with this person who has 500, this band that has 500 million, or that rapper who has 500 million. Right? And that kind of, um, you know, on one hand, success for all these artists to be able to express their uh, capacities and to find an audience who appreciates them, yay. 
but it also means that no one knows anything about what the hell is going on anywhere with the music industry because you might know your corner, you might know those people, but over here there's some other corner with other hundreds of millions of views going on doing this, and then some over there somebody else is doing hundreds of millions of views, and over here you know, other things are doing hundreds of millions of views. And that is both, again, the sign of, I think, of health, uh, and but also the underscores the difficulties that we face in trying to understand the world and then creating a world in which we can have a sense of who we are uh, and, and to be healthy, the sense of identity that we're going to need. Thank you very much.